and I want to say thanks. I know I know uh, he doesn't want any acknowledgement for this, but it's cool when a young man comes up and says, "Hey, is it okay if I like?" gather a bunch of information about the missionaries and get it on a piece of paper so people can have it and pray. I think 30 years on the mission field probably had something to do with that growing up in China. But it's so neat to see somebody in the body just kind of grab something like that and say, I want to run with this thing. Is that okay? And it's like, it's okay. It's more than okay. And so I don't know where those are available, um, but you have some of them printed out. He's not a girl. Elisha is uh, he's our he's our buddy. Anyway, the more you guys can learn about these these families that are out there and support them in prayer and and even in finding ways to to do things, just to contact them and let them know, um, you probably have some good ideas about what what would be meaningful for us to take part in in that regard. So, the rest of you guys can turn to Acts chapter fifteen. That's where we'll be this morning. I want to say thank you to Pastor Chad last week for stepping in, kind of at the last minute because I was super sick and uh, I didn't think that I would you know, come and share that with you guys. And I'm feeling better. It's nice to know that we've got plenty of guys that can jump in and and fill in when needed. So Acts chapter 15. Um, Last time we were in Acts, um, we saw the church settling an important matter regarding how a person is saved. And and so the question that came up was, is it what we do or is it what Christ has done, and the answer that the Jerusalem Council came up with was that the, it is grace alone, through faith alone, in the work of Christ alone, and that's good news. Because if it's up to me to come up with a way to save myself, I'm in big trouble. So the apostles drafted this authoritative letter that settled the matter, and they laid out four things related to pagan temple practices that the Gentile Christians should avoid to show love to their Jewish brothers by not creating stumbling blocks for them. These four things were not conditions for salvation, but requests that would promote unity and, and, and a unifying fellowship, if you will, between Jews and Gentile believers. So in Christ, we've been set free. But as Paul would later say to the church in Corinth, take care that this right of yours does not um, become a stumbling block. The way we use our freedom in Christ matters. Galatians 5 says it this way, in verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And that's the really cool thing about about the way grace works in our lives. Grace is effectual. When it collides with a person's life, when the grace of God impacts your life through faith in Christ, something happens. Right? Love happens. Worship happens. Obedience happens. Good works happen. They're, they're a result of this grace that impacts us. They're a result of being born again and being filled with the Spirit of God. And that's what the James was talking about when he said, faith without works is dead. Uh, grace will have an effect in your life. A genuine faith will result in transformation. And, and we see this in the reaction of the Gentile believers when they got this letter from the apostles. It says, when they read it, they rejoiced. And they were encouraged when they, when they when they heard about it. They didn't take it as a burden on their back to, you know, oh, we've got to go love our Jewish brothers. It's like, come on. They saw this as a great opportunity, and they were rejoicing. It's like, ah, oh, we get to go do this thing, and it'll, it'll make things better. And that's the difference the gospel of grace makes. So the apostles, when they wrote this letter, they needed to send Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch with it. But rather than just send Paul and Barnabas, they sent two delegates, which is probably smart. So they send uh, Judas and Silas along with them so that when, when they get there, they've got like, you know, somebody that's bona fide to say, yeah, that letter is real. So it wasn't like Paul and Barnabas could just like scratch out a letter when they got back and be like, you know, here, this is what they said. This has made it kind of legit when they got there. It's very clear that the church leaders saw this as a really big deal. 
that needed to be solved if the church was going to flourish. The letter was huge because it answered the question about what was necessary for salvation, but it also gave the missionaries the necessary ammo to combat the opponents that would teach otherwise. So if you remember, the way it would work is when Paul and Barnabas were on their first missionary missionary journey, that's not hard to say, first missionary journey, they would go into these towns and they would start to make an impact and then Jews from Jerusalem would show up. And every time that happened, there was like this thing where they, they carried some kind of perceived authority oh, you're Jews from Jerusalem. And they would say, well, no, no, you, you can't just be saved in Christ alone. You need to be circumcised. And somehow that carried authority or weight. Well, now they've got a letter from the apostles that'd be like, oh, you're, you're from Jerusalem? Guess what else is from Jerusalem? Like, you know, that was, that was, they probably didn't throw it down. But it was like, that kind of trumps these guys because it's like, we have something from Jerusalem too. And it's also, see, it's signed by um, Peter and James and the elders of the Jerusalem church. And they say you don't need to be circumcised. So it gave them kind of this you know, authoritative thing that they could throw down. So we pick things up today in verse 32 with Judas and Silas delivering the letter to the Antioch church along with Paul and Barnabas. Verse 32 says, And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So not only was the church encouraged by this letter that they wrote, but they were also encouraged by Judas and Silas, who were told were prophets. And, and there's often questions surrounding the gift of prophet for the church today. And we've mentioned before, we don't believe that there are any more capital P prophets or capital A apostles, but we do believe there's still room for this gift to be used in the church today. And whatever conclusion you come to, that role of New Testament prophet should include the ability to, to encourage and strengthen through their words. That's what these guys did. And I don't know if you've ever been around somebody that has this ability. You get near them, and they, they always have this way that they take the Word of God, and they, they present it to you in a way that just makes everything clear. And, and it's, almost, it's almost like a breath of fresh air. Because we live in a time when it seems like people enjoy using their words to tear things apart. If you spend any time you know, on the Internet or in social media... It, it, it's just it's ugly what people do with words, and so to have people like this who use words to build up is a very valuable thing. And for all of you here who go out of your way to encourage all of us with your words, um, thank you. It's such a blessing. Like I said, it's like fresh air coming into a stinky place sometimes, and and we really do appreciate it. So after spending some time at, at the church in Antioch, Judas and Silas head back to Jerusalem. But Paul and Barnabas stay to teach and preach. Verse 36 says, After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. And I read what Paul says to Barnabas and I think, Hmm, I don't know if I'm tracking with you there, Paul. It's like, I don't, I don't know if that's what I want to do at all. Because have you forgotten what those two years were like? How hard it was? You remember the hostility and the rejection, that time when they stoned you and left you for dead? Is any of this ringing a bell, Paul? That's kind of what I would be thinking at this point. And I can kind of imagine um, Paul saying, but don't you remember how God worked? How he used us and how many people came to faith in Christ? This invigorated Paul because that's how God wired him. 
He wasn't the kind of guy that liked to sit around in the same place for too long. Too long. Now, the reason that I can kind of imagine this conversation is because it's the exact same conversation that I've had with David for the last eight years since we started the church. Right? He's always thinking about what's next. What's the next beach we can storm? Where do we get it? You know, he, he he wants to charge full steam ahead into whatever's going on next with great excitement. Where I'm more like, hey, I'm I'm fine to hang out here for a while and and it's nice, it's quiet, it's good. Thank God for risk takers, for people that have that apostolic blood running through their veins. I don't have much of that. I don't think, I don't know how much of it Terry, Chad, or I have, but I know David has enough of it for all of us. And, and I'm thankful for it. That's one of the reasons we love the co-pastor model here. Because I would never willingly jump out of a perfectly good airplane. Right? But that doesn't mean I'm not needed. See, because I'm the guy that makes sure David's got a parachute and some rations, right? Maybe a weapon. Because he's jumping out regardless, you know. And so it's like, hey, wait, 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 you know, get this on. First, before you like pull the ripcord and, and jump into uncertainty. And, and I'm perfectly okay with him being the one to do that. Quite frankly, I'm glad he likes to do it. I don't want to go, you know, venture out into new worlds and, and explore new cultures and all that kind of stuff. I like, I like it to be home where it's comfy and cozy. But God has wired every member of the church differently. And he's given us different roles. But together, we make up the body of Christ. And we're better together especially when everybody knows their part, accepts their part, and plays their part. Right? A foot trying to be a hand doesn't work well. So, so it's important that we kind of know what, how we're wired. I'm not a beach stormer. <laughs> I'm perfectly okay with that. Right? But I'll tell you what, when you hang around with one for eight years, it starts to rub off on you. And so I get excited now too, which isn't not my nature at all. It's the same thing when you hang around with an evangelist or somebody who's generous or somebody who has a lot of faith, pretty soon it starts to rub off on you. And that's why we need each other so much in the body of Christ. i got to cough, so I'm going to do this. <clears throat> Very polite. You're welcome. All right, so Paul and Barnabas agreed that they should venture out on a second missionary journey, but they didn't quite agree on the particulars. So verse 37, it says, Now Barnabas wanted to take with him John, called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them, one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Um, John, or John Mark, as he is called, was Barnabas's cousin. He's also the guy that wrote the Gospel of Mark. Though not much is really said about why John left them on their first journey, Acts 13.13 13 confirms that it happened. Uh, the ESV chooses to say that John had withdrawn from them, but most translations say deserted. That's the word they use there. And Paul didn't want to like go hang out with a deserter. You know, the way he viewed him was like, this guy's not reliable. He's going to just bail on us again. I don't want nothing to do with this guy. Get that corn out of my face. That was Nacho Libre. Sorry. Uh, I don't even know where that came from. Stick to your notes. Um, and of course, for, for Barnabas, this is his family. And I don't know if you, if you know how family is, you always give family a break, right? Family always gets kind of a pass on certain things. So Barnabas was like, look, Let's give him a break. Paul said no. So verse 39 says, And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. 
Again, the ESV here says sharp disagreement. That's kind of funny because the Greek carries more of the idea of a strong emotion or violent action. So it's like you picture, you know, I strongly disagree with you. It's like, I don't think that's what happened. This got probably ugly and a little loud, and I don't think they parted on good terms. So Barnabas and Mark head to Cyprus. Paul grabs up Silas, who was one of the delegates that came from Jerusalem with a letter. He, he, he recruits Silas, and they head out to Syria to check up on all the churches that were established on the last journey. So that's kind of the, the, the passage, the narrative that, that we're looking at this morning. And, and there's, I want to just kind of focus on three different things from it. And they are that conflict happens, that we're to seek resolution, and that we need to trust that God is bigger than all of it. So the first one, as you probably know if you've been in part of a church for very long, conflict happens. The church is diverse. This room is made up from people or of people from all walks of life, which which is kind of an incredible testimony and strength, but it's also potentially a source of great conflict at times because we're extremely different. I mean, there's men and women in here. That alone makes things very different. There are boomers and millennials Right in the same room. That's they're different. There's different races, different social statuses, different bank account balances, different upbringings, different struggles, different religious affiliations. All of those things are true, and yet we're all brought together into one family. That makes it tricky. It's kind of a miracle that the church gets along as well as it does when you think about how diverse it really is. We've been amazed at, at all the different you know, folks that have shown up here over the last eight years. It's kind of a crazy thing. We, we always have said it's like a big junk drawer of a little bit of everybody, not to say you're junk, but you know what a junk drawer looks like. You open it up and it's just, just all kinds of stuff in there, and it's, that's how this has been. We've got you know, Lutherans and Presbyterians and Calvary Chapel people and Baptists, and somehow we all play nicely in the sandbox together. That's weird. And yet, that's the way it's kind of worked here, and we're thankful for it. So there's this great strength in our diversity, but there's also this great challenge that is presented because of this diversity. And Acts 15 gives us two examples of the kinds of conflict that we can expect in the church. And those two kinds of conflict are doctrinal conflict and relational conflict. Um, doctrinal conflict is what we see the church address at the Jerusalem Council, where they, they said, hey, you need to be circumcised. No, that's not the case, and they, they, they had to figure this thing out. Relational conflict is what we see take place between Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark. And both are still alive and well today in the church. Doctrinal conflict has to do with what we believe, and it's evidenced by the number of denominations that we see out in the world today. Um, all of those represent a difference of belief of some kind. And simply referring to yourself as a Christian church doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot anymore. It doesn't mean we're all on the same page. What a church believes is really, really important, especially when it comes to who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. And unfortunately, there's a lot of churches you know, under the Christian banner that hardly believe anything the Bible says anymore, and yet they're still called Christian. And, and that means there's going to be conflict at times. There are some things we can agree to disagree on, and there's some things we have to go to the mat and fight for. There's this kind of a push today for unity among churches, which is a really nice idea, um, but it's a very difficult thing to have unity without truth. I would say it's impossible to have unity without truth, and the church is called to both of those things. So I get on a lot of these Christian sites, and I like to read. I don't know why I do it. It's painful at times, but I like to read the comment sections. 
And I'm just, I don't ever comment because I'm, you know, I know some one of you will read it and be like, you were a jerk. But I want to comment. I almost want to create like a fake account just so I can comment, but I'm not going to do that. It doesn't seem like pastoral. So I won't do it. But you read these things and, and, and there's always these Christians that are kind of like, can't we all just get along? And I want to have everybody get along. But there are times when we can't. It depends on what's being taught. And so it isn't always just unloving or judgmental when you, when, you, when you hear a teacher or a pastor teaching false things. We have to say, that's false. That doesn't square with what Scripture says. That, that actually is anti-gospel. When those things come up, we have to be able to call them out. Now, it should be done as, a, you know, as graciously and, and humbly as possible, but it must be done. And we would open ourselves up to that same scrutiny as far as that goes. Because if you ever hear us teach anything that doesn't square with the Bible, tell us. You should talk to us about that. Because if we're in error, we need to know. And if you're in error, you need to know. And if there's a misunderstanding, we need to clear it up. That's what family does. You know, we recently heard about somebody leaving the church over a doctrinal conflict. And, and I'm not naming names or anything like that. Some of you may know, because unfortunately they never came to us to talk about it, but they talked to several people in the church. And the reason it's so unfortunate is because if they would have just talked to us, it could have been solved in a matter of 10 seconds. Because, the, the, the again, who knows what all the reasons are, but the reason they stated was they left because we don't believe in the second coming of Christ. Well, we do. <laughs> we really, really, really do. I wouldn't go to a church that didn't believe in the second coming of Christ. That's my blessed hope. If he's not coming back to rescue me from this, this pit, you know, that's bad news. He is coming back. We believe that. Now, we might differ on the timing of these events and how this all goes down and stuff like that, but those aren't reasons to break fellowship. So this could have been, in my mind, this could have been resolved by, by just let's get together and talk about this. So that's one kind of conflict, doctrinal conflict. Sometimes we can agree to disagree depending on what it is. Sometimes we can't, but that will occur and we have to work through it. The other kind of conflict we see in Acts 15 is relational conflict. And I probably don't need to explain this one to you because we're all too familiar with this kind of conflict. But I do want to point out that in the church, like I said already, we're family and family fights, but family works it out. We stick together and we work it out. When my kids didn't get along, I didn't just say, well, one of you go live somewhere else. You know, I wanted to a couple times, <laughs> but that wasn't an option. You know, you're stuck with each other for life. So you got to work it out, guys. And I would often, um, it's my boys I'm thinking of right now. I have two boys and three girls and the boys usually were the ones that I would do this to. But I would, often I would say, guys, just go in your room and don't come out until you've got it solved. And it was like, but, 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 no, just go in there. And I, feel, I wish we could do that in here sometimes. It's like, you, you two, go in the cry room, and don't come out until you get this thing figured out. But, but, he, no, no, just go in there, you know. And they would. They would come out. Sometimes it would take a while. Sometimes it would get a little crazy in there for a little bit. And then they would come out and be like, we're good. And it's like, good. We're brothers and sisters. The Father has adopted us into his family. It's the best family ever. And our Father wants us to be loving to each other and respectful to each other and kind, supportive, to get along. So we need to work on that. And there's really, we, he's given us everything we need 
for that to happen. So it's not realistic to think that we can do away with conflict, but it is reasonable to think that we can seek to resolve it when it does happen. Many people walk away from a church the minute conflict happens. And and it's sad because you know what's going to happen? They're going to travel from church to church to church until Jesus returns. And he is returning, by the way. <laughs> right? So there's a better way, and that is to seek resolution. Leaving conflict undealt with or unclear doesn't work, which is why Paul and Barnabas had to go to Jerusalem. That was for the doctrinal conflict. But do you realize how far Antioch is from Jerusalem? It's like 300 miles. <laughs> I'm just thinking, I'd whine about driving there, really. And they walked it to get this thing solved. 300 miles there, 300 miles back, because this was a big deal that needed to be solved. If these things aren't solved and, 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 and dealt with, the church isn't going to be unified. And we're called to unity and love. So we always really appreciate it when people are willing to work through things in the church with each other and with us. That's the way it's supposed to happen. And we're willing to help with that, by the way. If you guys are, you know, if, if there's a conflict going on in your life with somebody else and you need a mediator, you need somebody that can sit down that's objective, that isn't going to take sides, that's, that's there for, for both parties, we do that a lot. And we're happy to do it. It's hard. Uh, it's not one of our favorite things to do. But we're, you know, that's partly why pastors exist, is to be able to do this with you guys. So if you need us, we're here and we're willing. <clears throat> it's just sad to me when people part ways over things that really could be pretty easily resolved. Because like I said, we've been given God's spirit. We've been given God's word. We've been given the, the power to pray. And, and we can communicate and resolve things. When people just leave without saying anything, it, it's, it's kind of like a family member that just doesn't show up at the dinner table, you know? Well, where, where's mom? I don't know. She said she was going to go have dinner with the family down the street from now on. It's like, well, that's weird, you know? We, we, we should talk about that, maybe. We should, it shouldn't just like be able to happen sometimes. But that's, that's kind of what goes on. And we know we're not going to be the church for everybody. That, that, you know, we get that. But if, if, if you decide that... Talk to us. And if you've left another church and come, come to this one, do the same for them. Talk to the leaders. Let them know what's going on. Leave well. There's a way to leave well, and there's, there's a way to leave kind of things in shambles. Go to them and talk to them and just let them know what's going on. Get their blessing. Leave with a hug and a handshake, and we wish you all the best, and we'll see you in eternity. You know, can't, That's a lot better than just running into each other in the store, which we do that sometimes, and everybody's like, oh. You know, it's just weird at that point. You're like, yeah, we haven't seen you in three months. Yeah, we're not coming anymore. And it's like, okay, this is weird. So don't do it that way. Imagine what the church would look like if people sought reconciliation. When disagreement occurred, instead of just walking away. And I know some of you are like that, that guy on, I can't think of who it is. It's the dinosaur on Toy Story. You know, I don't like confrontation. I know some of you are like that. You hate confrontation. The idea of that is you'd almost rather like, you know, chop a finger off than have to deal with something like that. But it's worth it to do. So I would encourage every one of you, deal with conflict quickly. I'm, I'm always amazed at how fast things can grow into something really ugly when it's not dealt with. And I'm equally amazed at how quickly God can resolve something that's ugly and turn it into something beautiful when it is dealt with properly. Now, we can't always make resolution happen, but we can always clean our side of the street. 
And what we mean by that is, is you can't control what happens on the other side of the street, right? But you can take care of your business. And you can make sure that, that you're doing what you're supposed to do. That might mean swallowing your pride. That might, might, might mean that you can't keep score anymore. I'm a really good scorekeeper when it comes to the wrongs done to me. I'm like amazing. But I'm a really bad scorekeeper when it comes to the wrongs I do to others. I don't know if you have that problem. Um, but I really, I'm, I'm good at keeping track of, you know, one and not the other. We tend to only see the way we're wronged very often. And we can be blind to the wrong we do sometimes. So, so don't have that, that little myopic kind of vantage point that where you only see yourself. Sometimes it's good that we talk about like getting a bird's eye view of something. Um, I would say get a God's eye view of something. Get, get, get back away from the situation and think about what God's seeing. Think about what he's looking at. Think about the other person and how they've been infected and impacted. Usually when I do that, um, I find that the things that I re- refuse to let go of are petty and I'm just being silly, kind of like a spoiled child. Um, and, and I wish that I wasn't like that, but but I am. I, I do that way too often. And then finally I'll be like, okay, Lord, I see what I'm doing here. I'm being dumb. Unresolved conflict will lead to bitterness. I don't know if you've ever been around a bitter person. They're miserable. Miserable. And I remember this old saying, it's, it's stuck with me for years. Bitterness is an acid that eats its own container. <laughs> you know, you think that you're going to, you've got this bitterness, you know, you're going to just throw it on somebody and it's going to, it's going to hurt them. No, it's just, it's, just, it's destroying you most of the time. So make sure your side of the street is clean. Do you need to confess a wrong? Do you need to say you're sorry? Do you need to ask forgiveness? Do you need to right a wrong or pay a debt? Get it done. Don't wait. Get it done soon. When you say sorry to somebody that just came up recently, this is just a freebie. has nothing to do with what I'm even saying. Don't ever use the word but in an apology. I don't know if you've ever seen that before, but it erases the whole thing. <laughs> it's like it didn't happen. Hey, I'm really sorry, but let me tell you all the ways why it's really your fault, not my fault. That's kind of what happens when you say the word but, so don't. Get, get that out of the way when you do that. Even if somebody doesn't completely deserve it, be willing to forgive them. Even if they're more wrong than you, be willing to forgive them and get it squared away. Make sure you have a clear conscience before God and let God worry about what happens on the other side of the street. I think if we spent more time praying than we did fretting or convincing or manipulating, we, we would see God do a lot of cool things. So these things, sometimes we just need to hand it to God and trust him to work. And I found that what appears to be devastatingly impossible one day, at the end of the week, it's like, oh, that's gone. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, the sky is falling, and I'm never going to be able to get out from under this. And what is going to... And then a few days later, it's like, thank you, God, for taking care of that. And it's like, none of it even became a thing. So the last one is, is trust that God is bigger than all of it. God isn't pleased when his children are at odds. Um, It doesn't bring him honor, and it it really messes up our testimony to the watching world when we're fighting like like we do. But that doesn't mean that God can't use conflict when it does happen for his own purposes. When doctrinal conflict occurs in the church, it has a way of purifying things. You notice that? You know, there, were, there was a kind of a muddled belief, and they went to Jerusalem, and they, they, they took care of it. They recalibrated the church to truth 
And that's what doctrinal conflict does very often. But he also uses relational conflict for good. Paul, Barnabas, and Mark's conflict was ugly, and it was discouraging to the church, but the result of it was that two groups went out instead of one group to accomplish kingdom work. I don't know if you noticed that, but rather than one group going out to, to you know, wreak havoc on the world with the gospel, two went out. God used it for good. That's the kind of God he is. That's what he does. Our, our sin, our failures, our blunders don't interrupt his plans and purposes. And that's fantastic. So in the case of Paul and Mark, God worked in their hearts to bring future reconciliation. I love that they eventually worked together again. And in 2 Timothy 4, Paul made this request. This is cool. He said, hey, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Isn't that cool to hear? <laughs> like the guy he once called a deserter and said, you know, you'll never work in this town again as far as I'm concerned. Now he's so valuable to him that he doesn't want to do ministry without him. That's amazing. You know, and, and, and by way of testimony, I couldn't study this passage out without thinking about the story of the Maxwell family and the Thompson family. You know, you, you see, I'm Pastor Brent, I'm the Maxwell, David's Pastor David, he's the Thompson, just in case you don't know. Uh, you see us, you know, now, and, and you probably assume that everything's always been conflict-free, but that's not the case. And in truth, the fact that we've been in ministry together for the last eight years is really nothing short of a miracle. When David went to start the door, he recruited Doug Rayleigh to help him, and Doug told David he felt strongly that I should be a part of it too. Because, you know, when we moved here almost 20 years ago, we, we moved into a house in the Deschutes River Woods. Our next-door neighbors were David and Carrie. So that's how we kind of started. And our families were inseparable for, for years. You know, we would eat together, do church together, do Bible study together. We even put a little fence between our backyards for easy access to each other because... Yeah, I remember Cody one time when he was four, just walked into our house, didn't knock. I mean, we were like, we'd only been living there a month. Came into the living room. I was watching TV. He just sat down, laid down on the floor next to me, put his, hand, his head on my lap and watched TV with me. It was like, it was that kind of relationship. We ministered side by side for years, but conflict eventually found us. And it drove a giant wedge between our families. And, and honestly, I, I don't even fully remember what the conflict was, but I know for me, and I'll just talk about me, it had to do with my pride, and it had to do with competitiveness. Those were the things. That's what it came down to. And I was, gosh, I shouldn't have, should have thought this through. I, uh, I let those things get in the way of a friendship and a family that I loved. So when Doug said he thought it would be a great idea for, for us to partner together in this venture, I was like, yeah, right, that's impossible. That can't happen. It's not going to work at all. But you know uh, that nothing is impossible for God? I, I remember listing out five obstacles that, that needed to be removed before this could ever work. I'm a list guy, and so I had five. I don't even remember what they were, but I remember a couple of them. And you can't know what they are because they're mine. But, but I remember saying, these are five things, God, that th there's no way. Unless these five things go away, this can't happen. Guess what happened by the end of that week? <laughs> I mean, just gone. Every one of them gone. Things that I thought were impossibilities, he just removed. Because he wanted us to be reconciled. And, and the cool thing is, 
through all of that, it made our relationship stronger than ever. In fact, in order for this to work, you know what has to be killed and gotten out of the way? Pride and competitiveness. If that existed right now, this place would be really ugly. You can't co-pastor. That's why most churches don't co-pastor, because there's this weird competitiveness that goes on, and there's this pride that goes on. And God's killed it. You know, when David or Terry or Chad knock one out of the park, I'm not over there going, you know, <clears throat> you know, I, I'm I'm doing the wave. I'm happy that I don't really do the wave. I would never do that because it's just <laughs> not me. But I'm so happy, and I just I can't tell you how happy I am that that conflict is resolved and over with. It doesn't mean that our relationship is bulletproof. We still have an enemy that wants to drive wedges and stir conflict. But it's such a privilege to be able to do this with my friend and, and to have our families be knit together again because I can't imagine life without that family and mine. It wouldn't be the same at all. We're blessed. God is honored and ministry is happening because it got settled. So I don't want to, I just, I want to make sure you understand how important it is that we resolve conflicts and how, how honor it is to God. When it comes to resolving conflict and seeking resolution with others, we've got to think about our Savior. Think about our Christ who went through what he went through to resolve things with us. We were at odds with God. The conflict existed because of our sin against him. But God sent his son to resolve the conflict. And Jesus willingly came to seek resolution with you. Have you ever really thought about that personally? That the, 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 the sinless Savior, God, the Creator who had done no wrong, loved you enough to come and seek resolution with you? The Bible tells us that he, he humbled himself for you. The thought of him humbling himself to seek resolution with me blows my mind. I was the one in the wrong. He was the innocent one. And yet, he did this for me. Reconciliation is a beautiful thing. And because of Christ, we can have peace with God and with each other. Father, thank you so much for, for reconciling sinners to you. Lord, we, we, don't, we don't even understand how that plan ever got put into motion, but we know that before the foundation of the world, a lamb was slain for sinners. And so that means, Lord, that you knew us. You knew us past, present, and future. You knew everything we would ever do. You knew how we would, we would disgrace your name and how we would sin against you, and yet you sent Christ to reconcile us to you. We thank you that through the cross, through his death, burial, and resurrection, we can have peace with God. We can have peace with you. We can have peace with each other. And we pray, Lord, that we would be peacemakers. We would be people who enjoy the reconciliation that's available to us in you. And Lord, that we would seek um, to honor you in the relationships that we have within the church. Bind us together in your love and unity. Make us strong together, Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.